0: Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Or scroll in your Bible. Our gospel passage this morning. Notice verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable A man planted a vineyard. And let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. We've been following Jesus for Lent. As he says, it says early in, in Luke's gospel, there's this moment in Jesus' life, it says in a very picturesque way, where he sets his face toward Jerusalem and he starts on this journey. He starts Physically journeying to Jerusalem. In Lent, we follow Jesus on that journey. We follow Jesus on his way to the cross. For this Lent, we've been listening to various parables Jesus told along the way. Last Sunday, Luke chapter 15. Before that, we looked at some other parables. In this story, he's arrived in Jerusalem. And this is actually the last parable Jesus tells to explain who he is and what he's up to before he's crucified. It's his last explanation in story form. And how does he explain himself? What is it that he's saying about his own identity? Well, to explain who he is, he uses a very provocative metaphor. He uses the metaphor of a vineyard and its owner and its tenants and its servants and a son. No first century Jew would have needed to be told what these symbols represented because he wasn't making up this cluster of symbols he was drawing out of israel's long history out of israel's long oral culture he was drawing out key symbols that every person in israel every child every adult no one would have missed what he was getting at they would have all immediately have known that the owner stood for god He doesn't have to explain that. It would have clicked immediately in even the youngest child's mind. That the farmers, the tenant farmers stood for Israel. That the servants stood for her messengers, the prophets. You'd have a hard time finding a more easily recognized set of symbols to the people he was talking to. You see, Jesus is identifying himself, listen carefully, not as the solution to the generic problem of the world, but as the climax of the story of Israel. You see, in the West, we've lost the Old Testament. And this is a very complex set of circumstances that has resulted in many of us in this room who were raised in the church, who know how to share the gospel, and we can do it by starting in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and skipping three quarters of the Bible and then landing on Jesus. We can. Tell people that Jesus is the answer to their problem. Even though from the first line of the Gospels, Jesus is not the answer to your problem. He is the climax of the story of Israel. The first line of the Gospels. Is is Matthew saying that Jesus is the son of Abraham? In Luke, Luke says Jesus is the son of Adam. In John, the first line connects Jesus to the creation of the world. You see, our problem is that we, we're standing at the end of three to 400 years of history that has robbed the church of the Old Testament. And on our best day, the Old Testament is merely an illustration of the problem. And on our worst day, more than 75% of the pages in the Bible go unrecognized. And you know what results from this? It's the same result if you're a liberal or you're a fundamentalist or an evangelical. Jesus becomes your homeboy. Jesus becomes a pet Messiah. He becomes a Messiah that solves the problem you articulate, which funny enough, leaves out your real issues. Jesus becomes this homeboy that blinds you to the deepest idols of your life. So if you're a fundamentalist, Jesus solves the problem of you headed to hell. And if you're a liberal, Jesus empowers the marginalized. And if you're an evangelical, Jesus sanctifies your own personal moral brokenness. But in all three of these, Jesus has become a homeboy. He's become someone who protects your deepest idols and preserves the status quo It allows you off the hook by seeing your enemy's idols clearly while you're blind to your own. And so you take a passage like this and you think it's Jesus talking about your problem. But every line of the parable... It's Jesus saying he's the climax of the story of Israel. Now, does that have anything to do with your problem? Absolutely. But the issue is when we bring our kind of angle to the table and we lop off 75% of the Bible, we protect ourselves from dealing with our main idols. Just so you know, this loss of the Old Testament as fundamental to understanding who Jesus is, it reached its high point in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Where the Old Testament, instead of becoming fundamental to defining who Jesus is, became just little illustrations of generic universal truths. The Christians... In Nazi Germany. Followed that line. And created a Jesus. That sanctioned. The Nazi regime. They were brilliant. They loved God. And it blinded them. To the radically destructive nature. Of Nazism. Don't think. You can follow the same path. And do any different. Now maybe Nazism is not staring us in the face. But there is an empire of idols. That are as deeply rooted in us. That we're in danger. Of being blind to. Just like Nazi Germany. So what's going on here? Well, to understand this passage very clearly, we have to take three quarters of the Bible seriously. Now, obviously, I don't have time now to do that, except in summary fashion. So you start in Genesis 1, God makes everything, he makes it good. Genesis 3, humans sin against God, they shatter all of God's creation. Every dimension of life and matter is affected by the stain, by the cancer, by the cancerous tentacles of sin and evil and death. And once that happens, God chooses one person. He chooses Abraham. And God calls Abraham... ...to a task. Abraham lived in present-day Iraq... ...and God calls Abraham to go a-wandering. To go wandering off as a nomad... ...in the direction of what we call today Israel... ...depending on your political persuasion... ...Israel or Palestine. And God makes this covenant with Abraham. And in this covenant... ...there are these dramatic and grandiose promises... Through Abraham, through his descendants, who are the people of Israel, God will cause all the families of the earth to be blessed. Through Israel, God will undo the plight of, the, of creation, of humans. Israel is the people who will carry God's rescuing purposes to the world. And when we read the Gospels... Unless we are aware that Jesus is telling the story of Israel as climaxing in himself. Unless we do that, we will make him our homeboy. We will domesticate him. He will be very safe. He'll challenge a few things in our life, but not the deep core idols of our life. The events of Jesus' life. His death, his resurrection, his ascension. They can only be understood properly. His, his teachings can only be understood properly in this context. Now... When you read the Old Testament, and you should, you should read it over and over and over. When you do, you get to the end of it, whether you're reading it in the order that's in your English Bible, or you're reading it in the order that's in Jewish Old Testaments. Whichever order you're reading it in, the one that ends in Malachi, that's our English version, the Jewish order that ends in Chronicles. Whichever order you are reading it in, you get to the end, and you're left with the sense that the story of Israel is going somewhere, but it hasn't gotten there. It's an unfinished narrative. Things are supposed to happen that haven't happened yet. At the end of the Old Testament story, Israel is stalled. It's like the story of a journey in which the travelers misread a map. They lose their way. They get stuck in quicksand or lightning sand, if you're fans of one of the great movies of all time. And there are ROUs's. Or hostile armies, if you haven't seen the Princess Bride. Coming toward them. And it just stops there. That's it. It stops there. Nail-biter. What's next? When you read the Old Testament, you see these great beginnings with these wonderful visions of God's plan and God's purpose to renew all of creation. And then there's a steady decline in this puzzling set of shameful fair failures, all ending in a question mark. And so you start the New Testament, the New Testament part of Israel's story, and Israel is in lightning sand. Israel's in quicksand. The armies are bearing down. Rome is surrounding her, literally. Everywhere you look, Israel is on the brink of, of, of just catastrophe. Oh, and so over and over through Jesus' ministry. Here's, here's one of our big problems if you grew up like me in the very conservative evangelical part of the world. You read all of Jesus' warnings as warnings about your soul facing hell. But he was talking to Israel, and he was saying to Israel, You're about to get hurt. You better repent. Rome will destroy you. We see this playing out very clearly in the last three weeks of the passages we've been reading. Jesus consistently and constantly is warning Israel that God is about to bring his judgment down on Israel. The judgment that Israel wanted God to give Rome because Rome had conquered Israel and was abusing her. Jesus is repeatedly saying to Israel... That judgment is coming to you. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus tells Israel that they are so out of step with God's plan that they are going to be judged like the pagan nations. Look with me at Luke Luke chapter 3. Just a few of these moments. Luke chapter 3 verse 7. Before Jesus even begins his public ministry. John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, he comes on the scene and listen to what he says. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Listen, John is talking about Rome. He's talking about Rome is about to destroy Israel. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And do not begin to say to yourselves, we've got Abraham as our father. Don't say, hey, because we've got the right heritage, because of our parents and our grandparents and all, we're going to get out of jail free. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Then look at verse 17. John says, you think I've got a tough message. The one who comes after me, talking about Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Look, I've been saying this over and over the last few weeks. If you think the Old Testament is about a God of wrath and the New Testament is about of Jesus of love, you have not read the New Testament. Look at these images here. He's got a winnowing fork. He's got an unquenchable fire. This is talking about Jesus. Now go on to Luke chapter 12. Skipping a whole bunch of warning passages in between. But look at Luke chapter 12 verse 58. Here's Jesus talking. He's talking to Israel and he says, as you go with your accuser before the magistrate. Look, Jesus is literally walking toward Jerusalem. He's going to end up in front of a magistrate. He is talking about himself. He is talking about Israelites. We are on our way. Jesus is saying, I'm your accuser. You are walking with me. We're headed to the, the magistrate. What does he say? Make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he, who... Jesus drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the very last penalty. Now look at chapter 13, verse 6. A story we looked at three weeks ago. Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard. Look, clearly he's talking about the nation of Israel. That's one of their favorite symbols. A fig tree planted in a vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it. Found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look for three years now. I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. How long was Jesus' ministry? It was three years. I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered, sir, let it alone this year until I dig around, put on manure. And, he, and if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, cut it down. Again and again, Jesus in his teachings, in his storytelling, the message rings out. If Israel failed to heed his warnings, they will find themselves in the position that they wanted Rome to be in. Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 13. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are cities in Israel. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in, you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, those are non Israelite cities that were destroyed. In the Old Testament, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. When else, those of you in my small group that I'm a part of, when did we see people repenting and sitting in sackcloth and ashes? Jonah, Nineveh, a pagan nation. One of the key lines is that the whole nation repents, puts on... Jesus is saying, Israel, if you don't repent, you think it was bad on the pagan nations when I destroyed them? Look what he says. And you, Capernaum, his adopted hometown, will you be exalted into heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. Judgment will fall on Israel, which would make God's past judgments on the pagan nations seem mild by comparison. Now, this is what Jesus was saying. And over and over, Jesus says this is going to happen. And over and over, we're not going to take the time to look at it. He says it will happen within this generation, the people he was talking to. This is the devastating story Jesus repeats habitually on his journey to Jerusalem. This awful judgment, this imminent national disaster that is hanging over Israel's head. That was a regular theme of Jesus' preaching. Now, I don't know how you can read the Gospels and say that Jesus was a pacifist. How you can turn Jesus into a mild person is what I'm talking about. Into this peace at all cost. You are overlooking his constant threat Of the wrath of God. And right before our passage this morning, all of this gets to a climax in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 39. I'm sorry, starting in verse 41. Jesus crest the Mount of Olives. And what opens up in front of him is a vision of the city of Jerusalem. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. You know why he's weeping, don't you? I mean, you've been following him, begging them to turn back. Or within that generation, wrath and destruction. Now you know, don't you? When he gets there and he sees the city. Have you read any of these psalms talking about how God's people love the city of Jerusalem? Have you ever read those psalms about the beauty of Zion? When Jesus sees it, he weeps. And what does it say? Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that do make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. See, when you domesticate God, you cannot see the deepest idols in your life. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Look, this is a historical statement. It is straightforward. He is talking about A 70 He is talking about on that very mountain in less than 40 years, Titus, a Roman general, will stand with the 10th legionnaires. And when they get finished with Jerusalem, it will be raised to the ground. He's saying this. They will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wouldn't you weep too? If you knew that within that generation, men, women, babies, children, women will cry out, Oh, I wish I had never had a child. If you knew this was going to happen, wouldn't you weep? Wouldn't you beg Israel Get in line with the purposes of God. Stop in your steadfast agenda. Over and over, Jesus warned Israel. The judgment she wanted God to mete out to the pagan nations would fall on her. Assyria and Babylon had been the instruments of God's wrath before in Israel's life. Rome Will be the next instrument. So in our parable in Luke chapter 20 verses 9 through 19. Jesus summarizes this thing he's been saying over and over. Notice first God sends messenger. And another messenger. And another messenger. He sends the prophets. Israel reject them. They abuse them. By the way if you're familiar with the biblical story. In a few days after this. Stephen stands up in Jerusalem and says the same thing. You killed the prophets and they pick up stones and they kill Stephen on the spot. You don't start messing with Israel's sense of identity and saying they are not who they think they are without provoking violence. And finally in this story, Jesus says the patience of God reaches... A terminal end. He will send his son. And that is the last messenger. No one else after that. To reject the son. Is to turn the last chance away. But the story doesn't stop there. Yes, Israel rejects the son. And when they do, you see, Jesus wept because he knew Israel had signed her death warrant. He knew that in AD 70, it was over. And he knew the die was cast then. But notice verse 17. Right before that, in verse 16... When they heard this, they said, if you know Greek, maginatoi, which literally is the strongest way of saying no. Some of you have a way of saying no that you say at home, but you wouldn't want me to say now. (laughs) It's in the optative state, which means may this possibility never happen. No, 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 it is not so. God will never take away from us. What he's given us. We refuse to think of God's wrath. Turning against us in that way. And Jesus says in verse 17. What then is this that is written? He quotes the Old Testament. The stone the builders rejected has become the corner stone. Israel's rejection of Jesus. Is going to be a terminal end for Israel. But. But. God will take it up into his purposes. And make this rejection the cornerstone of a new work. Her fate is sealed. Israel re- will reject God's son. But God will vindicate his son. The rejected stone will be vindicated. He will build the true temple. And God's son will become the chief feature of the new temple. Look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken in pieces, and when it falls on anyone it will crush him. Jesus Christ, God's son, will become the standard by which everything and everyone is judged. Even though the tenants kill the son, the vineyard owner will have the last word. And in God's mysterious power, with the tenants what these tenant farmers do to the son. Take him out of the city and kill him. By the way, where did they kill Jesus? Out of the city. On the hill of Golgotha. In God's mysterious power. He will take what the, the tenants do to the son. And it will become. The actual victory of God. The cross will become the throne. The murder Will become the ascension. Not only was Jesus raised up literally on a cross. But in that moment of rejecting him. He was being established as the king. Something fascinating going on here. You see, when Jesus quotes this stuff about the stone, the builders rejected becoming the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken in pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush them. He's drawing in a very important piece of the Old Testament. He's drawing in Daniel chapter 2. When he starts talking about a stone that breaks things again because they were immersed in the Old Testament, Unlike us, they had not lost the Old Testament. They knew what he was referencing. Because one of their most famous prophecies involved a stone that breaks things. In Daniel 2, one of their, fav- one of their favorite prophets, he has this vision of an enormous statue that is identified as a symbol of the evil world empires, the evil empires that work against God's agenda. And then there's a stone that starts rolling down and it hits the statue and it shatters the statue, and it's God's judgment on the evil empires of the world. They love that. But Jesus is saying Israel, you have become one of the evil empires, and you will be destroyed by the stone. And right now the stone is rolling toward Jerusalem. But here's the catch. In Daniel's vision, after the stone smashes the Colossus, the giant statue, the evil kingdoms, the stone becomes a mountain that fills the earth. Or in another part of the Old Testament that Jesus quotes, Psalm 118, verse 22, that stone becomes a cornerstone of a true temple. You see, the result of Israel's rejection and murder of the Son will be nothing less than the renewal of all creation. With the thorns and the briars that choke out Eden, and in Isaiah 5, which is the part of the Old Testament where Isaiah, the most famous prophet in Israel, tells his own story of a vineyard that gets choked with thorns and briars. Jesus is saying, what you do to me will actually affect the reversal of sin sin thorns and briars replaced with beautiful trees. I love the way this is described in Isaiah 55. You shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth before you into singing and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of thorns will come up fir trees. Instead of the briar will come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the large vision of what God. God will accomplish through the rejection of his son. Nothing less than new creation. The renewal of the whole created order. The whole creation set free from its slavery to decay. That's Luke chapter 20 verses 9 through 19 in its historical context. Now let me conclude... By saying what this can do with you today, tomorrow, besides saying Jesus is the Lord, which in and of itself is enough. Look, if you're struggling with if Jesus was true or not, these prophecies alone should give you pause. Jesus predicted AD 70 40 years before it happened. It happened. It happened just like he said. He predicted that the church that came out of that would spread to fill the world. It has happened. If if you're struggling with if you believe in God or not, take the historical data and deal with it. But I want us to look at it from another angle. When Jesus announced what God was doing in the world, he was murdered for it. He was killed. That's what happens when he got to Jerusalem. What should you expect when you live for God in his kingdom? When you stand up to the evil empires of this world, in whatever manifestation your life and vocation brings you to, when you stand up against the evil and the darkness in this world in the name of the King, don't expect anything else. When you work for God in this kingdom, you know, I think of Aaron and Scott. I think of how Aaron and Scott. Tomorrow, you know what they get up to? They get up to a job that takes them right to the front lines. You've seen those World War II movies where they're in the trenches. And they're waiting to go up over the edge. And you have that incredible dread that 90% of them are going to be mown down. That's what I think when I think about Aaron and Scott. They're going to fight an evil in this world that crushes the most powerless among us. And it's terrible. And what it does to Aaron and Scott, I think about this a lot. When I think about our housewives, that tomorrow you're getting up. And if there is ever a moment in the history of our civilization where homemaking is out of all order with the grain of the universe... And if there's ever been a moment where the church has said nothing to homemakers about how their job is on the front lines. So when I think about Mary Grace and I think about my own wife as I go into my office and I think when I'm, I'm leaving my house, what Janelle is about to be doing that day. Look, you cannot stand up for the king and go out into your vocation. And if you're standing for the king and his kingdom, it is brutal. I think about what Alec and Katrina are doing. As they try to make a dent in the darkness of food in this valley. And and the long slog ahead of them. And it will take a toll on them. It's hard work. As I think of Joetta and Zeke and Stephanie and Anita. As I think about our artist. If there is a place in our culture where darkness and evil dwells. It's in the arts. My wife and I love watching movies. Most Friday nights and Saturday nights, after the kids go to bed, we watch a movie. We cannot hardly find a movie that doesn't grieve us. Because of its inability to speak light, but instead an indoctrination into darkness. As I think about Zeke, who is trying to find a way to make art... And to make a living. And, and, and as you think about Joetta's struggle to discover the, the, the artist inside of her. And to paint with truthfulness to her identity. Don't underestimate this battle. As I think about Stephen and Ben, as they go out into business and how easy it is in the business world to yield to the blinding idols. This is rough stuff. When we get to the end of our service and we send you out with the presence and peace of God, it's because we know Those who have developed worship know that if you don't have that, you're toast. (laughs) And that every Sunday you need to come back into moments like this where you ascend into the heavens and God heals you and God loves you and God collects you again. When you sound the kingdom note, whether it's in food or art or law or politics or as a student, when I think about our students it is almost overwhelming to me to think if you can make it. The darkness is so dark. And and that's just talking about the moral side. But when I try to think about all the other elements of being a student, this is rough stuff. And I know that when you stand up in your dorm and you stand up in your fraternity and you stand up and you sound the kingdom note, you will follow the way of Jesus and you will be rejected and you will be abused. You will be treated violently and some of you in your very own home for you to embrace the kingdom is to sign your own death warrant. But the vineyard owner will have the last word. The last word is not with the enemies of the kingdom. The last word is with the owner of the vineyard. You see, what I'm trying to say to you is that what happened to Jesus is an example, but please don't stop there. What happened to Jesus is not only an example of what will happen to us, it is so much more than that. What happened to Jesus was the decisive victory. So you can march to your martyrdom. Scott and Aaron can walk into the very teeth of the enemy himself, knowing that on a good day, they, they scratched a little ground out for light. And on most of their days, the darkness overcame. And when I pray for you, and I know about so many of you that the darkness inside of you is winning the day. And that Lynn has been a giant failure for you. And that your sins are higher than your righteousness. That is not the end of the story. Because what happened to Jesus, his his radical destruction and defeat was not just our example. It was the decisive victory. So as Donna sounds the kingdom note in education. As Paula volunteers at the Harrisonburg Pregnancy Center and sounds the kingdom note. We are not merely trying to persuade the rich and the powerful and our own children and our own employers and our own employees and our workmates and our neighbors. We're not merely trying to persuade them to accept God's Son. We are declaring that God's Son has triumphed, that his kingdom shall prevail, that the cornerstone is in place, that a new creation has begun. Did you hear what you prayed in the collect? Almighty and ever-living God, in your tender love for the human race, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take a bone in my nature and to suffer death, giving us the example of his great humility, mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering. Did you hear Sharon reading from Philippians, Paul saying, I've lost everything. When I look back, The loss in my life is enormous. I have lost everything. But what did he say? But it doesn't overwhelm me. Why? Because I lean toward what is ahead. What is ahead? This stone growing into a mountain and all of creation being covered with the glory of God. So as you walk into your own martyrdom, whether it's social or physical, or financial or emotional as you go into the martyrdom that your vocation will deal out to you. You can lean into it because you know that Jesus's martyrdom affected something. It opened a door that cannot be closed. That new creation has sprung up. And there will come a day when death itself will be no more. There will come a day when he will wipe every tear of martyrdom that you have ever experienced. When I think about those of you who are parents that are looking at children that have walked away from the faith. And I think about the deep pain and death in your own life. I know that there will be a day when God himself will wipe that tear from you. And all of creation will be covered with the glory of God. And as sure... As Jesus' warnings to Israel were accomplished in A.D. 70. You can believe. You can have faith. That the deaths you experience. Will be taken up. By the Lord Christ. Just like he took up the 12-year-old girl who was dead. And they will be raised to life. And you can be sure that the small and minuscule attempts you make for the king and his kingdom, the king will take them in his hands like he took a few pieces of bread and some fish. And in the hands of the king, They will be transformed into new creation. So when we read Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 19, we can be assured that the murder of those who stand for the king and his kingdom is not the end of the story. We can be assured that murder will occur, and it will continue to occur. But we can know that all of our pain and all of our suffering as we align ourselves with the King and his kingdom will be taken up into the hands of the Father and his glory will cover the earth. Let's pray.